News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, of course, it is Friday the 13th, and it's two weeks before Halloween. What a treat. I mean, I love this time of year. But, you know, society has actually had a a fear or an apprehension of Friday the 13th long before movies about a serial killer named Jason came out. It goes way back. And we're going to talk about that history now with the help of our next guest, Dr. Phillips Stevens, Jr., Associate Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at the University of Buffalo. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yes, you're welcome. You must be very busy on a day like today. (laughs) Actually, you're right. I have three of conversations about <laughs> Okay, well, then let's get started with this. Why do we have this uh, concern or fear of Friday the 13th? Okay, this a, a superstition like this one is based in what I am what I have shown uh, are fundamental human ways of thinking. All people everywhere engage in um, certain patterns of magical thinking um, based on two principles. One, things that resemble other things and things that have been in contact or some kind of direct association with other things have a causal relationship. If those other things are negative, um, then something unfortunate might be, result from that relationship. Uh, so, Many examples of superstitions are explainable this way. Um, We avoid things that have some kind of a negative uh, outcome, especially if um, they have to do with these these same kinds of principles, things that we can get involved in very easily. Um, The Friday the 13th taboo uh, has many different explanations, but the Probably the most accurate is this. It derives from the Christian story of the Last Supper of Jesus, which was on a Thursday night. It was a Seder meal, apparently. There were 13 people at that table. One of them betrayed Jesus. Uh, he was arrested that night. He was flogged. And the next day was the the most cataclysmic event in, um, in Christian uh, thinking, uh, uh, in in the the history of the world, it was it was a a great uh, tragedy. Um, so thirteen becomes taboo uh, separately, uh, and then uh, if the thirteenth is a Friday, which was which was problematic, uh, then we have a kind of a double whammy. Um, this belief developed in the. Middle Ages, actually, it, it, it probably a, a thousand or eleven or twelve hundred years after uh, the time of Jesus, uh, and it spread uh, through the Christian world, but also beyond it. And uh, the the taboo against thirteen became really pervasive. A lot of buildings don't have a thirteenth floor. Airplanes didn't have thirteenth rows, and so on and so on. Uh, today it's weakening. I I, I think. Do you? You um, think so? Because I am in a building that they, we don't have a thirteenth floor in this building. <laughs> uh, yeah, that seems to have become kind of permanent. Um, the, I think uh, you have to consult a building contractor, but I think buildings are just kind of programmed to right. skip this. The thirteenth What about uh, Norse mythology? The- like you talked about, how it started with Christianity, it continued through Norse mythology, right? The unlucky number thirteen. Well, no, that's purported to be much earlier. That story about Freya, the uh, a party of the gods, or something like that. I, I, I don't buy it just because the diffusion of of that story could not have been anywhere near. The, conf- the diffusion of, of Christian uh, elements. That's, that's one. There are several other interpretations of 13, um, and I just, I, I, I don't buy it, but, but you know, right. they're there. What about pop culture? How much of a, a, a causal has that been to people being afraid of Friday the 13th? Well, it, it was really, really uh, pervasive uh, in... Uh, 
Well, I'm in my 80s now. In my youth, uh, there was far, far more fear of it than than I think there really? is today. Yeah. Um, my 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 youngest son chose number thirteen for his his uh, lacrosse uh, jersey when he played in high school, and um, this, you know you'll you'll see the number thirteen chosen um, freely and uh, without fear in many uh, areas. I I just think it's it's gotten kind of faddist and it's uh, it's declining. Now, I understand even at the turn of the century, like 1907, there was a book that came out having to do with Friday the 13th? 1907? Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. What is that all about? I don't know which book you're talking about. There are several books about superstitions, but um, I think the 13th is one of the most pervasive um, but there are a lot of other classic superstitions which are explainable by these same principles of magical thinking, like uh, stepping on a crack. Right? A yes. crack represents a crack represents damage uh, that could be contagious. Um, breaking a mirror. The mirror reflects things. The old idea of image magic is absolutely universal. Uh, the, the image of something that resembles something else have, has a causal connection. If that image is made with something that was in contact with the thing it represents, then this connection is even stronger. The mirror is a perfect representation of, of, of things uh, it reflects. Uh, and you break the mirror and you're breaking the, the, all of those things symbolically. Are you superstitious um, opening, on this day? Let me let me say one more. Opening umbrella an umbrella in the house demonstrates classic worldwide principles of separateness. The umbrella is designed to to protect us from storm outside. Um, the elements of the storm become infused in that umbrella. You do not open it inside the house because the house is domestic. It is orderly. It um, this is where great things happen, where family uh, unity and babies are conceived and so on and so on. And that's a worldwide type of, of, um, of taboo. Uh, soldiers uh, in the early Middle Ages would not bring their helmets or their armor or their weaponry inside the house. You do not bring shoes into the house in a, in a medieval, uh, sorry, a Middle Eastern household and certainly not weapons. Right. Weapons are instruments of death. Wow. What I can't believe all these different things, all because of a simple date. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, Have sorry, a good day. we got a little confused. No, no, no. We had a lot to talk about. It is Dr. Philip Stevens, Jr., Associate Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at the University of Buffalo. Of course, he specializes in Friday the 13th. And of course, he's incredibly busy on Friday the 13th. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun on this Friday morning. Vaughn, are you a scary movie person? Yes, I'm a scary movie person. And uh, on my recent vacation through the U.S. Southwest, came across the hotel that inspired The Shining. You're talking about <laughs> the book, The Shining. The book, The Shining. So the story, we, we go to this hotel, gorgeous, restored hotel in Colorado called the Stanley Hotel, and we'll get to the name in a minute, and tour this thing, and because it's beautiful, and notice there's all these references around to The Shining. Now, as a big fan of the movie, I know that the exteriors for that movie were shot at Timberline Lodge in Oregon at Mount Hood, and the interiors were shot on sets in the UK. So what's the connection to the Stanley Hotel? No connection to Stanley Kubrick that I'm aware of. But I'm looking around this place, Simi, and... Uh, there's a whole bunch of references to the hotel and its connection to The Shining. So here's the story. Stephen King, the writer of the book, and his wife, 
stayed there one night in hmm, 1973, I think. And the hotel was closing for the season, so they were the only guests, and they went into room 217, which is famous to anyone who's read the book. And King has a nightmare. (laughs) In the nightmare, his son is being chased around the hotel. And Stephen King, being Stephen King, wakes up, and he doesn't, you know, phone home to see the kids are all right. No, no. He sits down and writes the plot of The Shining, which is why Stephen King is such a successful writer. So the hotel has been capitalizing on this ever since. There's a Shining tour. There's a hedge see, maze. They're, they're planting a maze in the front, in front of the hotel. So, again, if you've seen the movie, uh, that's uh, in the movie. Um, When King decided he didn't like the Kubrick film, he arranged for a made-for-TV movie about the book that is shot at uh, the hotel. And King himself appeared in the film as a band leader, and there are pictures all over the hotel. So I asked the desk clerk whether or not it is possible to book the famous hotel room where King had the nightmare, and that is at the center of the movie and the book. And she said, yes, but it's a two-year waiting list. Apparently, oh, boy. Simi, there's a lot of people out there <laughs> that don't mind how I think it would be incredibly unnerving yes. to fall asleep. I'm not sure I could fall asleep in that room. Anyway, if anyone's ever going to Estes Park in Colorado, which is right next to Rocky Mountain National Park, I recommend the tour. And by the way, the name Stanley doesn't come from Stanley Kubrick. It comes from the guy who invented the Stanley Steamer automobile. (laughs) And there's a whole bunch of those in the hotel as well. So if you're not interested in the Stephen King connection, uh, you can have a look at the vintage automobiles. I love it. When you told me this, when you were there on that trip and you sent me a picture, and so I looked at all the pictures online and the inside, and I can see the, you can see the hints of it. You can see why and what inspired Stephen King and the book and even the movie to some extent too, because you can see all the hints of it. They really leaned into the movie stuff. They've got rooms, they've got carpet that looks like the carpet out of the movie. They've, the rooms, the bathroom, you know, with the lady getting out of the bathtub and all of that, like all of that is, it's like, wow, they're really going for it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, I sent a postcard to a friend from there uh, saying all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. So that's another line from the movie. Come and play (laughs) with us forever. So creepy. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, enough cultural references. I love it. It was fun. Something a little bit less scary, perhaps, that we can talk about is there's some good news out of this health minister's meeting that was happening in PEI. Yeah, I think so. We're used to the provinces and the federal government getting together and talking about the need to do more for the healthcare system. They don't always come out with agreements, but Adrian Dix did a um, Zoom conversation out of Prince Edward Island yesterday, and he said they did make progress this time. Uh, The country's health ministers, they've agreed, at least in principle, to get going on national accreditation, one accreditation all national for doctors and nurses. Right now, uh, believe it or not, despite the constitutional right to mobility in the Canadian constitution, you can't just pick up and practice medicine. If you're practicing medicine or nursing in one province, you can't just pick up and go next door to the next province. You need all kinds of accreditation barriers to do that. Dix said they've agreed that there will be single accreditation. The goal is to get nurses done next year and doctors the year after. So uh, Dix is right. That's very good news for British Columbia because doctors want to come here. I don't know if it's good news to other provinces, but it's certainly good news to British Columbia. And he says, uh, another thing too, is that if you have, uh, if you practice medicine in a border town, you could take patients from the neighboring province. So that too is good news uh, for British Columbia. And we are back now talking with Vaughn Palmer. Now, Vaughn, I love this story because we've been making fun of Oak Bay, and it yeah. sounds like this is just a shocking development. Yeah, shocking development. Oak Bay, the provincial government, has been accused of picking on Oak Bay as Exhibit A, the poster child for not building stuff. And more often than not, David Eby has cited a case of a proposed 14-story Sorry, four-story, I don't want to terrify the Oak Bay listeners, four-story, 14-unit condo project on Oak Bay Avenue, 
that has been in process there for more than 10 years. The council has twice turned it down and insisted it doesn't meet their zoning requirements and their parking problems, and there's a tree at risk and all that. Um, David Eby cited that many times as one of the reasons why the provincial government was going to have to step in and start pushing municipalities to do more. Um, when he named Oak Bay as one of the, quote, quote naughty municipalities and told Oak Bay uh, to produce uh, 644 units of housing over the next five years or something like that. Over Oak the Bay next responded, five years. That's the part that I gets know, me. I know. And Oak Bay wrote back with a 10-page letter of protest about it. So this is going on for a while. This week, check the TV station in Victoria reported last night that Oak Bay quietly, in a minute, approved the four-story, 14-unit condo project, the one that they had repeatedly held up and refused to deal with. They've approved it. And, you know, I think there's shock all over the capital region. Um, the I, I have to say, I think the provincial government's message got through to Oak Bay Council but, Simi, we may have to retire that joke about the motto of the Oak Bay Planning Department being, how did you get our phone number? Uh, <laughs> I mentioned it to you on the radio a while ago, and the housing minister said he really laughed at that one, and he said, I may have to use that in the future. Well, maybe the joke is over. Oak Bay's gotten the message from the province, and it's approved the project, and congratulations to them. God knows what more than 10 years of processing added to the cost of those units, but it looks like they're going to actually get built. Well, let's not get excited here, okay? First off, this took <laughs> 10 years. It's four stories. So what, somebody applies for it now if they get excited? It might be another no, 10 years before the, another one the, gets built? No, the developer is uh, celebrating the fact that it's finally going ahead. can't uh, believe the developer hung developer, in there this long. Yeah, they're quoted on check last night as saying, okay, I guess they finally got the message. We're going to build this thing. So there you go. I mean, maybe they'll put up a plaque to the end of the struggle around this thing. But uh, as I said, I, I, we don't know what the units are going to cost. I can't imagine they're as cheap as they would have been if the council had approved it in the first place or even the second time, which they refused to do last year. Uh, no kidding. All right. Uh, one more thing we need to talk about here, and this is a big one. This has to do with yep. civil forfeiture in the province. <clears throat> yeah, no. And, uh, you know, Solicitor General Mike Farnworth out celebrating the Supreme Court of Canada refused to take the case, an appeal by the Hells Angels, against the B.C. Court of Appeal decision that upheld. So the province seized three Hells Angels clubhouses, one in Vancouver, one in Nanaimo, and I think Kelowna, valued at $3 million. It was going to sell them as the proceeds of crime. Uh, the B.C. Supreme Court had thrown out the effort, uh, saying that the province hadn't made the case that Hells Angels were involved in criminal activity, which came as a bit of a surprise. To anyone who's been following the story, I know Kim Bolin of the Vancouver Sun wrote about it. The Court of Appeal, however, reversed the decision and said, no, the province had made the case and this forfeiture would go ahead. Certain amount of suspense around that one, Simi, the Supreme Court of Canada has been known on occasion to side with the BC Supreme Court against the Court of Appeal here. But this week, Supreme Court of Canada refused to take the case. As you know, they don't give reasons for that, but it means that the Court of Appeal decision stands. And Mike Farnworth is saying, attention, miscreants, this thing is going to go ahead. We're going to sell those clubhouses, use the money for the victims of crime, and be warned that this is not the last time we're going to do this. Uh, Farnworth is entitled to celebrate. I would just note that these seizures actually happened under the previous BC Liberal government going back to 2007. So it's really a victory for the approach that both governments in BC have taken, which is, look out, we're going to seize your property if we can prove you were involved in crime. Right, because civil forfeiture has just, and it's not just BC, right, but it's become increasingly popular all yeah. over North America. It has, and there's been a real fight here uh, through the courts to try to stop it. Um, and as I said, when the B.C. Supreme Court threw the case out, a lot of people went, oh, well, you know, it's a great law, but you can't use it because the test for proving it is so high. Court of Appeal said, no, no, the province made the case very well. 
that the Hells Angels were involved in criminal activities. The seizure is justified. And by letting that stand, the Supreme Court of Canada sent a real message to gangs and crimes and people involved in drugs and other criminal activity that, you know, the party is over in effect. They're going to come for your property now. All right. Well, Vaughn, thank you so much for that. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to take a look at what has been happening in the United States over the past week. And for that, as always, we turn to Reggie Giacchini, our Washington correspondent for Global News. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. I don't think you've been quite busy enough this past week. Yeah, it's, it, was a, it was a tough welcome back. No kidding. You were off for a few weeks and then back to this. So as of this morning, there is still no speaker for the House of Representatives. There is still no speaker for the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, the nominee that had been put forward earlier this week, the number two in command in the Republican Party, Steve Scalise, stepped down last night from that nomination post because he doesn't have the support within the Republican Party to get to the 217 votes needed to secure the gavel. And the question is... Jim Jordan, who is a further right member of the GOP, who was the only other person nominated, who came in with fewer votes than Steve Scalise, is he going to try to step up and try to secure any kind of votes, although it's unclear if he can? At the end of the day, we are going into another day of no speaker in the United States, and without a speaker, legislative work can't be done, and that includes defense spending for issues, including the crisis in Israel. Right. So we have this huge crisis in the Middle East where people are looking to the United States for leadership, for guidance, for help uh, for Israel in particular to show the way. And they're kind of frozen. Well, they're frozen and and they're showing the world. And and at the same time, they're showing adversaries um, that dysfunction is kind of running rampant throughout the U.S. government. I mean, look, this is a a House of Representatives that have been governed by Republicans now for uh, the better part of a year. Within a year, they have thrown out uh, the Speaker of the House. They've barely been able to put legislation forward. And now they can't even rally themselves around somebody to reclaim this key constitutional position. Uh, And it is sparking questions. Are there enough Democrats who could work with moderates in the party in order to potentially put a moderate Republican forward? Or... Do we find a few Republican moderates join Democrats and all of a sudden we find ourselves with a Democratic Speaker of the House, despite the fact it's a Republican majority? There's a lot of unknowns right now, uh, and it's going to have implications domestically and abroad. Yeah, let's talk about the abroad part of this then. What has been the White House message to Israel and to Hamas in all of this? Well, I mean, look, the United States is standing steadfastly by uh, Israel. It is a long-standing ally, uh, and we have seen repeated phone calls between the White House uh, and uh, and the Israeli Prime Minister over the last several days, the Vice President involved as well. Massive shuttle diplomacy is underway with the Secretary of State, who was in Israel yesterday. He's now uh, headed to Qatar, the UAE, Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, but I think the important message that we're hearing from the White House is, look, Israel, you have the right to defend yourself against these barbaric attacks that took place and continue to take place uh, via Hamas. But at the same time, uh, the United States is also urging Israel to not seek revenge, but rather to use restraint with whatever is going to happen next. And, and, and we largely anticipate this is going to be some form of ground incursion. But the U.S. wants this to be done um, in a way that follows the laws of international war, fearful that this could really further destabilize what is already a bit of shaky ground in a kind of long-standing destabilized region. Right. And I understand that the United States has urged Israel to use some restraint. Yeah, use restraint, but at the same time, uh, promising that additional weaponry Uh, is going to show up. The United States is going to move more munitions. We've already seen that they've brought uh, 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 sea vessels into the region, mostly to counter any kind of foreign actor that may try to get involved with this, be it Hezbollah or be it something from uh, Iran uh, or or Syria. Uh, But, you know, when we kind of broaden it out and bring it back domestically to the U.S., there is, you know, munitions, there is weaponry headed to the Iron Dome system. But at the same time, the U.S. has a $3 billion um, defense aid plan to go to Israel that they can't get past because there's no speaker. So really, everything that's going on in the Middle East right now can have a tie back to simply how the government in the United States is not working, despite the fact you have the U.S. saying, look, we will do everything we can to support you once we can get our act together. 
once they can get their act together. All right. Speaking of that, I know there's been this has even kind of filtered into the presidential campaigns on the Republican side, hasn't it? Uh, of course it has. I mean, look, you've had uh, you, you have Republican nominees for president standing alongside Israel. This is one of those rare times where the incumbent president, Joe Biden, and the people looking to replace Joe Biden are on the same page saying, look, we will do what we can to ensure uh, Israeli sovereignty is not going to be um, you know, damaged and, and that the Israeli people are going to be protected while at the same time protecting civilians uh, uh, who are non-combatants living in in Gaza unless you're Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the only one who is in the Republican Party right now, veering himself in a complete different direction, making, you know, horrendous and inappropriate statements um, about the Israeli government, you know, praising terrorist groups like 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 uh, like Hezbollah. So, yes, this is getting into uh, into Republican politics just in two very different ways. But again, this also shows you that this is such a unique um, like point in the presidential campaign that he can say things like that, that former President Donald Trump can. And seemingly, is he not affected by that? Because if any other politician or wannabe politician said those things, Reggie, it would be a completely different story. I mean, sure. But but look, we're eight years into Donald Trump being on um, on the political stage in the United States. And we're eight years into hearing Donald Trump say things like, look, I could shoot a gun down Fifth Avenue and be fine. Or uh, uh, Vladimir Putin is a smart person or Kim Jong-un is a smart person. We've we've heard these kind of bits of nonsense from the former president for years now. And what does it uh, what does it do? It, it, it has him cross a line. And we know that when he crosses that line, there are going to be people that follow him. And there are now supporters of Donald Trump who are in a position of being critical of the Israeli government for one reason or another. Um, even though you have Donald Trump saying, look, Hezbollah, a, a group that's actively looking to potentially open up a northern front uh, war front in Israel, um, you have you have the former president praising them, saying, look, they were able to get around the intelligence uh, of Israel, so so they must be pretty smart. The world, the White House, is is pushing back on Donald Trump, but he'll continue to say these things because he knows that he can, because there will be people that support him. Is it going to help him in the long run? Possibly not. But in the short term, um, it, 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 it keeps him relevant somewhat uh, on the political stage. Uh, so interesting. All right. So then just quickly on that Speaker of the House situation, what are the next steps there? Like, are they going to meet today? Are they going to try to force a vote on something? Well, look, they met yesterday. Uh, they gaveled in and immediately gaveled out. They're going to attempt to try and, and coalesce around somebody. There are conversations happening with moderates to figure out if there's someone that they can put forward. The issue is concessions have been made that one person can topple the Speaker. And, and there's a threat here that whoever is put in, one person could go and topple that person again. So the question is, are, are Democrats going to try to work to get concessions on their end to say, look, we'll work with you if you do this for us. It could happen today. If it doesn't happen today, it might happen next week. The longer it takes, the longer the rest of the world finds themselves potentially, you know, waiting if they need help on the United States. Oh, boy. OK, thank you so much for that, Reggie. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Northern Spotted Owl. It is critically endangered here in BC. And there have been many groups that have been asking the federal government uh, for help to protect the Northern Spotted Owl. And yet this week, federal government decided not to issue an emergency order of protection in a few critical areas that groups had been asking for. And a lot of those groups are very, very angry, including the Spasm First Nation, uh, you know, and parts of the province as well. I mean, they have a spotted owl breeding and release program, and they feel like this is not helping them. So let's talk more about that this morning. Andra Azevedo is with us, a staff lawyer for Ecojustice Canada. Andra, thank you for being here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Can you explain to us what happened? What was what were what were people trying to get, and what did the federal government say no to? Yeah. So Wilderness Committee, uh, who we we have a court case ongoing um, about this exact issue. Uh, Wilderness Committee has been working on this issue for the last 30 years, um, as spotted owl has declined. Um, and over that time period from pre-industrial times, there was about 500 pairs, so a thousand, about a thousand owls uh, in Canada. And uh, in 1991, there was about 100 pairs, and now we're down to one wild-born owl in uh, in BC and in Canada. It's not even a pair, one owl. No, exactly. Um, so we're we're right on the edge of uh, an extinct of of extinction. 
uh, for this species. But as you mentioned, we do have a captive breeding facility. So there is a potential to release, be able to release owls into the wild. Um, but the really critical part is that we know from federal scientists, from independent scientists, that the key issue with spotted owl is the loss of the habitat that they need. And the habitat they need is old growth forests. So um, as logging of old growth forests has happened in BC, these owls have just continued to decline. And unfortunately, what we've seen is in the province is the province has continued to authorize logging in areas that um, have been identified as critical to this species being able to recover and areas that they need if we are to kind of get the species back to a level where it's stable. Um, and so the Federal Species at Risk Act actually allows and, and requires the federal government to step in where provinces fail to protect species and their habitat through something called an emergency order. Um, and under this emergency order provision, the minister must recommend an emergency order when he determines there are imminent threats to a species survival or recovery. And so back in October, um, and actually a bit earlier than that as well, but uh, Wilderness Committee wrote to the minister saying, look at all of these authorizations that uh, BC has allowed to go forward um, of logging in critical habitat, so in the habitat necessary for, species, for spotted owl recovery. Uh, we need you to act now because BC is continuing to make these authorizations. And it's very clear now that the spotted owl is not going to be recovered, uh, able to recover if we continue to allow logging to, uh, to happen in these areas. Right. And there was a request for the federal government to step in and, and say, OK, no, we're not allowing that to happen, but they're not going to do that. Yes. Yeah, so so back in January, the minister determined that at least 2,500 hectares of habitat was necessary for spotted owl recovery and that it was imminently um, about to be logged uh, in this logging season. So in 2023, and the logging season ends approximately in November. Um, and so, for, but however, for eight months, the minister waited to make this recommendation to cabinet. And we, Wilderness Committee went out and uh, documented that that meant that while this delay was happening, logging was happening of the areas that the minister had said were needed for spotted owl recovery. And so finally, in September, the minister did make this recommendation. And unfortunately, cabinet uh, responded by saying that they were not going to make this order, that they were not going to, to act, kind of protect um, spotted owl habitat, even, even though they'd waited this long. Um, and instead, they were going to take a collaborative approach with BC and Indigenous nations, um, which a collaborative approach with BC and Indigenous nations is, is great for the long term of this owl. But what was really being asked for in this case was emergency protection to step in that would be temporary so that while these negotiations were taking place, while a collaborative approach was being determined, we weren't continuing to lose spotted owl habitat. Right. Because as, yeah. Also, I was going to say First Nations groups like the Spuzzum First Nation, they're furious about this. They, they wanted to see this protection. So exactly. Um, and uh, spot, our Spuzzum First Nation has been critical in uh, protecting the areas that uh, where the last owl actually is remaining. So that is in the Spuzzum watershed. Um, and they've also been critical to uh, supporting the captive breeding and release program that's been ongoing. So um, when you have the nation that has the last wild owl in their area asking for emergency protection so that this owl doesn't continue to be the only owl in the landscape, um, I think that was a, would have been a very important, should have been a very important consideration. And um, and yet it appears that uh, Cabinet has decided to not take that, hmm. um, not weigh that. Very so heavily. under what happens now? So um, Wilderness Committee brought a case, started a case in federal court back in June um, to uh, to both try to try and force the minister to make a recommendation as well as to ask a court to address this delay, because the delay is also a key part of, of how this emergency order provision is supposed to um, uh, it, it counters how this emergency order provision is supposed to work. Um, obviously, it's uh, hard to argue that something is having an emergency response when you wait for months and months while that emergency is continuing to happen. So that is continuing to go to court. We're continuing to ask the court to determine whether that delay was unreasonable. Now, unfortunately, because cabinet has already made this decision, Obviously, what the court decides is not going to change cabinet's decision. It'll right. only affect how these emergency order provisions um, happen going forward, um, including for any uh, future of uh, 
emergency order provisions right. around But in the meantime, owl. this one spotted owl, we could lose it. Yeah. And, and so this, this one spotted owl um, is, is obviously in a very uh, uh, precarious position. Um, the, area that it's in, as far as we know, is temporarily protected by BC, at least until 2025, um, as well as there's now been two captive owls that have been released um, right. as well. But but yeah, so so what Cabinet has set us up for is needing, um, needing to move quickly on a collaborative approach with BC and Indigenous nations. Um, right. And so what needs to happen is is for some commitment to uh, protect the habitat that is um, is critical to the recovery of these species, to stop issuing, continuing to issue logging authorizations right. in those areas, um, and to figure out yeah what what's going what's the permanent way to go forward. Right. Well, listen. Thank you so much for talking to us about it this morning. Thanks so much. Appreciate your time. Andra Azevedo, who's a staff lawyer for EcoJustice Canada, talking about the one northern spotted owl that we have left in the fight to save it. This is Mornings with Simi. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie has arrived in Israel this morning. One of a number of high-ranking foreign diplomats, politicians that are in the country from, from other nations to offer support and also to help get its citizens out. There's also a joint effort, it sounds like, underway to create some kind of humanitarian corridor into Gaza in order to provide food, water, and desperately needed medical supplies. And that concern about how cut off you know, those things are is really heightened right now because Israel is vowing to put the area under a complete siege and has told residents there to move south as it prepares for a ground invasion. And the United Nations has also come out and said, listen, that's not realistic, that you're not giving people enough time uh, to evacuate and get out of the way. I mean, the whole thing is a chaotic mess and, and different this time than we have seen in, in previous and in, in years past. We're going to talk about why that is. Dr. James Forrest joins us now, a professor and director of terrorism and security studies at the University of Massachusetts Lowell School of Criminology and Justice Studies. Dr. Forrest, thank you for being here. Good morning, Seema. What strikes you when you're observing this and watching and seeing what is unfolding there? What is so different about this situation than we've seen in the past? Well, we really haven't seen the level of uh, brutality uh, on both sides in you know quite a long time. Uh, this is this is you know risen to the level of carnage that uh, you know you usually only see when uh, one state attacks another state with a full full on military. And so, do you see any sign of either side backing down? It doesn't seem like Hamas is still vowing to do. They're vowing for today to cause more trouble. Um, Israel is vowing to go in there and end this once and for all. Like, what, what is the solution here? Uh, yeah, that's that's a very tough question. Um, you know, there's really, right now, really, there's really uh, doesn't seem to be uh, either side sees it in their best interest to negotiate some sort of, you know, uh, Standing down, or at least taking a pause, and you know, taking a step back from the brink. Um, until they do, I think they're just going to see a lot more bloodshed. Um, there's a lot of uh, fear that's being generated um, by both sides. Um, you know, the the idea of a ground invasion of northern Gaza Strip, uh, that of course is going to lead to uh, a lot more civilian casualties. Uh, and Hamas has already kind of shown its cards that, you know, they're willing to take uh, a high level of Palestinian casualties in order to try and get Israel to do what they want. Right. They've also shown their cards with their attacks on civilians of how this started almost a week ago, which which really put everything in motion here. That this All this seems to go against what had been kind of agreed upon conduct in, in war situations, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it's been, a, in, in that particular con- context, it's been a low-intensity conflict uh, punctuated by small spasms of, of violence here and there. But, um, yeah, this is certainly, like I said earlier, it's kind of unprecedented in terms of how a violent non-state actor has gone in and, you know, they, they attacked the music festival. They attacked all kinds of different civilian targets, thousands of casualties. Um, and, of course, Israel is responding as you might expect Israel to respond in that kind of uh, incursion. And so what is different about the hostage situation here? 
Well, the hostage situation gets really complicated because not only do you have Israeli hostages, you also have uh, hostages from foreign countries, including from the United States. And so that's going to uh, multiply the number of countries that's against Hamas. Uh, so I think in, in that case, Hamas may have miscalculated uh, what they might be able to get in terms of strategic advantage from uh, these hostages. Right. So you, was that perhaps an overestimation of what other countries would be willing to do? Well, yeah, I mean, terrorism is kind of predicated on the idea that we are going to use violence and the credible threat of violence to try and get what we want from another state, usually a more powerful country. Um, and in this case, uh, they may have miscalculated uh, whether or not the hostage-taking uh, element in, involved in this plot was actually going to work out to their benefit. I don't think it will. Yeah, why not? Well, I don't think it's in anyone's best interest right now to try and negotiate with Hamas uh, unless Hamas gives them any reason to have a sort of a good faith agreement that, you know, the hostages will be kept safe. I mean, they've basically taken the hostages and trying to hold them uh, in positions throughout the Gaza Strip in order to prevent Israel from launching the airstrikes. And that has not worked. So what what is the way out here? Do you see usually that there's somebody that can be appointed to kind of mediate and get in there? They can't even agree on that, though. Yes, that, that's going to be a really tough, tough one. Um, they're going to have to all agree on some sort of neutral, uh, objective party who will be willing to negotiate or intermediate some sort of um, resolution of this. And, you know, trust is kind of hard to come by in that particular context right now on both sides. What do you see, like, how is this being observed around the world? There, there was a lot of outrage in the beginning. There continues to be outrage. But is there a similarity to the reaction around the world? Uh, well, I guess it depends on where you might be looking. Um, you know, everyone's going to have their sort of own own opinions about this, but uh, I think there's some that have a, a feeling of a plague on both your houses, if you will borrow from Shakespeare, um, because you know neither side really has uh, a clean, um, you know, sort of bill of rights to claim that they're an innocent victim in all this. Um, there's been atrocities committed by both sides, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I have any sympathies whatsoever for, for Hamas. Don't get me wrong there. Um, you know, Hamas started this by crossing into a sovereign territory, kidnapping and killing, you know, hundreds of civilians. Um, you know, women and children have been kidnapped. I mean, it's just, it's just it's an atrocity that Israel has every right to respond in every way it possibly can. Unfortunately, Responding with a repressive uh, action that, um, you know, collective punishment and whatnot that Israel has done in the past and is doing now tends not to result in um, a favorable outcome for anyone. Uh, At the very least, it's going to end up in a stalemate where they agree to stop the the guns and the rockets, um, and then they'll sort of have to work forward a a negotiated, uh, you know, exchange of hostages and, you know, some way of standing this down. Yeah, some way. Uh, Dr. Forrest, thank you so much for your time this morning. Sure, have a good one. That's Dr. James Forrest, a professor and director of terrorism and security studies at the University of Massachusetts Lowell School of Criminology and Justice Studies. Now, we were talking about the humanitarian crisis unfolding in Gaza. The Israeli military has told uh, people in the northern part of Gaza to get out of the way, to move south, to leave the city. And the city has got like 600,000 people in it because they are preparing for a ground invasion. Meanwhile, the United States government is trying to broker something. They're talking with Israeli officials, with Egyptian officials. They're trying to get safe passage for foreigners and to create some safe zones uh, within Gaza to try to protect people. They've been talking with the International Committee of the Red Cross, uh, United Nations Relief Agencies. That's one of the reasons why Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie is also in Israel today to try to figure out and, and help with this push that is being made right now to get some safe passage for foreign citizens and others uh, within that Gaza area. In the meantime, the Israeli military says they are uh, pushing ahead with plans for a ground invasion of Gaza. Now, we'll keep you posted on the latest on that. Just uh, keep it tuned in here for the latest. This is Mornings with Simi. Civil forfeiture is a very popular tool that governments use to try and have an impact on organized crime. It's become more and more popular in the last 15 years, particularly here in B.C. And a huge decision yesterday by the Supreme Court of Canada means we will likely see more of it. Let's break it down now with the help of the person who's been covering stories about this for years. It's Kim Boland, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Kim. 
Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, you've covered so much about organized crime. How important do you think civil forfeiture has been in that fight? Well, I think it's been huge. I mean, you look at this case involving these three Health Angels clubhouses. It's been going on since 2007 uh, when police moved into the Nanaimo clubhouse, uh, seized it, filed a civil case against it, saying that they believe that criminal activity had taken place in that clubhouse. And interestingly, at the time, there had been a major criminal investigation into the Nanaimo Hells Angels, uh, but charges never materialized. So, you know, this is the thing. A lot of people think, well, if there haven't been any criminal charges, how can you go after the property? Uh, But uh, this law has been upheld as constitutional. And you're right. I do think we'll see a lot more of it. Right. And so we've seen kind of the B.C. government in particular, whether it's the B.C. Liberals at the time or now the NDP, they have used it more and more, haven't they? It certainly has been used more, but arguably there's more criminal activity and proceeds of crime uh, in this province than there's ever been. So, you know, what happens is uh, police do a criminal investigation. Maybe they don't quite have enough evidence to support charges. Uh, So they then refer the file to the director of civil forfeiture and they decide whether they're going to file one of these lawsuits against, you know, it's often property, uh, sometimes it's vehicles, sometimes it's expensive jewelry, and sometimes it's actually real estate, right? A house that, you know, maybe a drug lab was found in or a whole bunch of drugs and firearms were located. So, you know, they are using it a lot more. You know, there are some times where you think, well, this seems pretty serious. I'm, you know, why aren't there criminal charges? And I did talk to the uh, uh, public safety minister yesterday, Mike Farnworth, and he said this isn't going to replace criminal charges. Uh, you know, when investigations uh, leading to charges are appropriate, that's still going to obviously occur. Right. But this gives them another tool then. So what was it about this case? Was this a significant civil forfeiture against the Hells Angels? Well, it's significant in that it's precedent setting. When you look at the value of the three clubhouses that have been seized, the one in Nanaimo is not a very nice building. It's only um, assessed at $282,000. The one in Vancouver is a more typical house assessed at over $1.5 million, and the one in Kelowna is about $1.3 million. But, you know, they've spent many more millions than that on this a civil case, both sides, over the last 16 years. You know, it was years before it got to trial in B.C. Supreme Court, then the trial went on for years, then a ruling finally came in favour of the Hells Angels in June of 2020. And uh, they hadn't been able to use these clubhouses fully for some time, so then they moved back in, you know, took over, held events again. Uh, The B.C. government appealed that ruling, and then in February of this year, uh, they won uh, quite a sweeping victory on appeal where a lot of the original ruling was overturned. And so the Hells Angels then um, sought leave to the Supreme Court of Canada, and that's the decision that we got yesterday, literally just a paragraph saying, uh, you know, no, leave is not granted. This is dismissed with costs, meaning they have to pick up the B.C. government's costs. So it, it's really significant because it's long running. When the Hells Angels first, uh, they countersued the government and they said that Civil Forfeiture Act is unconstitutional. And they claim they were doing that on behalf of all British Columbians. Uh, and, you know, that they have lost and they've lost big time after, you know, a many uh, year battle. Right. And you said this is these are three properties in particular, but what what does this mean for potentially other properties that the BC Hells Angels have? It's hard to say. I think they have to show that the properties, you know, have or would be used for criminal activity. Uh, so, you know, there still has to be some kind of criminal investigation evidence, you know, uh, that would meet that threshold in civil court that something has gone on there, uh, you know, meaning that the property should be forfeited to the government. But yes, uh, there are 10 Hells Angels chapters, uh, four others besides these three that have lost the properties, own uh, clubhouses. Uh, the total value is another $4.5 million, roughly. Uh, so, you know, yeah, they could go after more clubhouses. And I'm sure that's something that concerns the Health Angels a lot, uh, though I couldn't get a comment from them yesterday. They weren't saying anything publicly uh, right. to me anyway, though I t- reached out to them. 
Uh, interestingly, one of their puppet or support clubs called the Devil's Army in Campbell River, the director of civil forfeiture filed a case against that clubhouse a few months ago. So, you know, they are going after other assets as well. In that case, the Devil's Army president uh, killed a guy inside the clubhouse, and he's now been convicted of first-degree murder. So, you know, there's a very... Uh, you know, there's a there's a very obvious nexus between criminal activity and that that building in Campbell River. So I expect that one will get forfeited as well. Right, but you made a great point there when you talked about that doesn't mean the end of criminal prosecution here. There, but is is what is the difference for people who don't know Kim? Like, is the threshold lower for civil forfeiture in, in saying that? Oh, listen, we know crime happened here. Yes, it's definitely lower. It's just like any other civil court case. It's a balance of probabilities, you know, 51-49, if you will. Whereas, you know, the evidence has to be substantial in a criminal case, right? And some of these, you know, involving organized crime are extremely complicated criminal cases. Uh, We've seen Hells Angels pleading guilty as recently as last week uh, or in in criminal cases. So it's still obviously going to be happening. But this is another tool. And I think the public wants to see organized crime dealt with in this province. They don't want to see, you know, people with uh, no jobs driving around in $100,000 vehicles. Uh, So I think generally, it's a fairly, uh, you know, it's a tool that the public supports. Uh, because, you know, we had the public inquiry on money laundering. You know, people know there's a lot of money that comes from organized crime activities in this province, and they want to see it addressed, I think, every way they, that it can possibly be addressed. That is very true. Kim, thank you so much for that. Thanks for having me on. Kim Bolin, written a great piece. You should check it out, VancouverSun.com, about this uh, latest story involving the Hells Angels clubhouses and the lawsuit that went all the way to the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court has declined to hear it, meaning BC's Court of Appeal decision stands. Now, the message from Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General and the Public Safety Minister on this was, and he said he put this out there yesterday on social media, saying, my message to those involved in organized crime, we will continue to go after your clubhouses, expensive cars, your front businesses, and luxury luxury goods, you will not profit from any crime you commit in BC. And he said, today, after 10 years of legal proceedings, the Supreme Court of Canada declined to hear an appeal from the Hells Angels in British Columbia regarding the forfeiture of three clubhouses in Nanaimo, East Vancouver, and Kelowna. Government is now the rightful owner, Minister Farnworth said, of these properties and will move to liquidate these properties and use the proceeds to support victims of crime. So as Vaughn mentioned earlier too, that is two governments now. The BC Liberal government started this process, the NDP government continuing it on the use of civil forfeiture to fight organized crime and clearly now getting the leeway to do so with the Supreme Court declining to hear this case. So will we be seeing more of it? That, of course, is what we will wait to see. And as always, you can email me, simi at cknw.com.